from the Pictures Out There studios, welcome to the Pictures Out There podcast series with Dave Fogelman and Lee Stewart. Pictures Out There ties the future to the present and is a new approach for vision and action toward a better future. And now, here's Dave and Lee. Hi, this is Dave. And this is Lee. And welcome to our latest podcast, Pictures Out There. Let's briefly review the last segment, which was the second part on perspectives and our ongoing community of caring. So we described the concept of community and how we develop an ongoing community of caring that is somewhere on a spectrum uh, between what we called macro and micro, depending on how small or narrow you choose to have your ongoing community of caring, or how wide it may be that potentially can reach all the way out to the global community. Today, Lee will be reading two wonderful stories about his childhood and his childhood community. If I can ask you, our audience, as Lee shares these memories, I invite you to also think about the idea of community in your own life and your own communities of caring. And what Lee's stories may tell us about the possibilities of love, life, and our own journeys from the past to the present to the future. Lee? Thank you, Dave. The Second Saturday in December. The second Saturday in December was the second best day of the year. Christmas had it beat, but not by much. The second Saturday in December was the day when Blue Rapids my hometown, staged its annual winter children's holiday festival. It seemed like it was always, every single year, 45 degrees and sunny on the second Saturday in December. It was just chilly enough to lend a holiday feel to the festivities, but it was still warm enough to run around with your nylon winter coat hanging off your head by its hood with the arms flapping free behind you like a cape. The second Saturday festival began at 1 p.m., an agonizingly late start time for children under 12. You tried to while away the morning by watching cartoons on TV or by shaking the wrapped presents under your family's Christmas tree and by asking your mom, can we go yet? About 15 or 20 times before even lunch. Well, the cartoon watching part wasn't too bad. The cartoons I favored were Clutch Cargo, The Jungle Adventurer, Looney Tunes, featuring the remarkably sustained apoplexy of Yosemite Sam, and Wacky Races with Penelope Pitstop, our heroine, Dick Dastardly, the villain, and Muttley, his canine henchman. Somehow, we all survived those interminable morning hours. Then, after mothers all around town had insisted that their children, quote, eat a good lunch, Families began to arrive at the Regent Movie Theater for showtime at 1 p.m., the kickoff of the holiday festival. The doors to the old, dank, careworn theater were open this day to all children for free. And the show was an hour's worth of animated Christmas programs, like Frosty the Snowman, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Nothing that would require much of an attention span. Each kid got a complimentary red and white zigzagged bag of buttered popcorn from the theater concession stand. And on this day, 
a homemade frosted Christmas cookie handed over the counter in a green cellophane wrapper. And this is the absolute best part of this. No adults were allowed in the theater. Only kids. Hyped up, out of patience kids, all of whom understood this experience was just for them. Man, was it fun. When the projector flickered into life, there was a cheer from youthful voices. During the show, kids talked back to characters on the screen. They sang along in the right spots. They wailed and wept falsely when Frosty began to melt and generally expressed every emotion from glee to despair. And no one ever shushed you. Kids would yell to their friends five rows behind them. And no one ever shushed you. Popcorn got spilled, popcorn got thrown, popcorn got devoured, and no one ever shushed you. We are talking best time ever. When the show was over and the theater emptied, 100 kids formed an expanding, contracting, pulsating, blob-like organism that rapidly and loudly propelled itself one block east to the Cindy Center Park, where the next wonderful activity awaited. After this kid blob reached the park, Don Roach, the city's one professional auctioneer and therefore an all-purpose public address announcer, would in his booming voice say, Okay, everyone, kind of line up with the little kids in the front of the line. Moms and dads, you can help the little ones if you need to. Now get ready now. We're going to have an extra special visitor from out of town. Here he comes. And Don would theatrically point to the north side of the city center park where Santa could be seen strolling into view. Now, this Santa was not much for stagecraft. There was no miniature sleigh, no cardboard reindeer. His dark brown workman's gloves seemed incongruous with his otherwise authentic costume. He just kind of ambled up to the crowd and issued a few ho-ho-hos. Santa was a man named Gene Ball, the father of one of my friends. We all knew it. His Santa costume did little to conceal his true identity. But we didn't care. Gene was Santa for now, and he was dipping into his bag to hand out candy. Santa Gene gave a paper bag of candy to every kid in line. The candy had been donated by Vic and Basil, the two local grocers and some moms had assembled the bags with neatly tied red and green ribbon around every bag. Upon receipt of those bags, the next sequence of actions seemed to break along gender lines. Girls would hop, skip, and smile their way back to their parents standing a few yards away, proudly holding their bag of candy out as though if it were a Fabergé egg. Boys, on the other hand, would rip their bags open with great force, usually sending the contents flying across the ground and provoking a sugar-seeking scrum. I remember those bags of candy fondly, but I was lucky enough to have received a prize that dwarfed the second Saturday in December gift. One year, when I was seven or eight, I won a lottery. My name was drawn, and this lottery was sponsored by Vic's Ideal Grocery Store. My prize was a four-foot high red plastic mesh Christmas stocking chock full of small plastic toys, comic books, and candy canes. I still have a photograph of me in a pair of new flannel pajamas holding that stocking 
like I'd caught a prize fish and smiling like the luckiest kid in the world, which I was. Truthfully, I can't remember a single item from that stocking. I just assume it contained toys, comics, and candy. But the volume of that memory would fill a thousand red mesh, wonderful winning stockings. Now back to the second Saturday. When his bag was emptied, Santa Jean waved and shouted, Merry Christmas, and shuffled off in the direction he had entered. Next came the turkey drawing. Now, you would think that the turkey drawing would not register the same on the excitement scale as free movies, popcorn, Santa, and candy. If the kid-friendly activities registered a nine, turkeys would come in at what? Maybe a three? Nope. Turkeys were a strong seven, perhaps an eight on the excitement scale. Here's why. The local merchants who had chipped in to buy the turkeys did not half-ass it. No 12-pound roasters in this lot. Only 20-pound, 22-pound, 25-pound frozen birds that Don Roach had to wrestle around on his public address platform so everyone in the crowd could see them. These birds were big. Big birds before there was the big bird. For a month leading up to the second Saturday, the townsfolk could buy turkey draw tickets for 25 cents apiece in all the local stores. Now, the bird-winning strategies differed, of course, with some folks buying dozens of tickets and others betting all their hopes on one single 25-cent investment. But by the second Saturday in December, there were hundreds of tickets in Don Roach's wire basket. The turkeys were donated, so the money from ticket sales was divided among bird winners to buy all the trimmings for their Christmas dinner. Don Roach was masterful at building suspense before he announced the winners. He jovially pointed out one of the physically big men in the crowd, and he said, Now, Cecil, where are you going to put one of these big old birds? He thanked the merchants for their generosity. He thanked the proprietor of the movie theater. Did you kids enjoy the show? Yeah! And he swished his hand around inside that wire basket for several seconds before extracting a winning turkey ticket. Now, I gotta be honest about what's next. I don't know if what I'm about to tell you is true, or if in my memory I simply wish it were true, but knowing my hometown and the wonderful people in it, I'm willing to bet it was true. Don Roach seemed to draw out only those tickets that had been purchased by especially needy families, by farmers who had lost crops during the previous summer's drought, by older women newly widowed, by younger women whose husbands were in the service. Oh, it might have been holiday magic, or it might have been a benign conspiracy, a kind of tender-hearted setup. But even as a kid, I knew it felt good. This bird goes to Luann Nemechek, boomed Don. Hey, Luann, come on up, and congratulations. Folks, Luann's other half Bobby is over in Vietnam this Christmas. So we sure are glad she won. We all wish you a good holiday, Luann and your kids, and we hope to see Bobby back home before you know it. This big old 25-pounder goes to Enos Honeycutt, roared Don. Well, Enos went and got his arm all buggered up in the hay baler this summer. How's that arm doing, Enos? Is it good enough to help Fanny cook this turkey? And then, 
Our last turkey goes to Don and Barb Stewart, Don Roach said. My family, we're winners. Don, we sure appreciate all the way you keep our mail running, and I know you couldn't do it without Barb's help, Don Roach said. Just quit raising the cost of those damn stamps. Ha ha ha. My dad went forward to get the turkey, to nod to the crowd, and to accept the envelope of cash for all the trimmings. I jumped up and down without interruption for 30 seconds. Sugar and winning are a potent combination. Well, thanks everybody for coming out this year and the Merchants Association of Blue Rapids, and we all wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. With Dawn's wishes, the crowd began to disperse, folks shaking hands, clapping backs, knuckling shoulders, and high spirits. As I walked to our car with my mom and dad and sister Kay, I clutched the two pieces of candy from my Santa bag that I had not yet eaten. Dad toted the turkey. Mom, her cheeks wet and her eyes brimming, carried the cash. The winter sunlight began to pale on that second Saturday as the glow of Christmas began to brighten in our hearts. Lee, thank you so much for that beautiful memory. Let me ask you just a few things about uh, that remarkable story. Uh, what was your sense of the world at that time? I have, I'm curious how big or small it seemed to you. I'll answer first by saying it's a community of about 1,400 individuals. At the time I grew up, they're smaller than that now. And further, uh, as I was a child growing up, my family didn't have much opportunity to travel. So my world geographically, if you will, was quite limited, quite constrained. However, my interior world was vast. And as I reflect back these many years on why that would have been, I know that I received frequent messaging from my parents, from my teachers, from other important adults in my life that said, you're going to go out into the world when your time comes. You're going to experience wonderful things. Make sure you're ready to make your contribution. So from a young age, I received messages that my turn on the world stage would come and that it was incumbent upon me to prepare myself to make my contribution. Who were some of those other people who gave you those messages? I had a beloved great uncle who I only saw maybe once or twice a year, so not frequent communication with him. He was a professional educator, a superintendent of a public school system. And uh, as an educator, he would take me aside, if you will, if only for a moment on those rare occasions that I got to see him. And he would say, how are you doing in school? What do you like? What do you love? What are your interests? And I would articulate for him whatever they were at that time. And he said, you make sure you follow those passions as far as you can. You're going to have an opportunity to do something with those things. So he was a, a huge influence. There's two parts of it. One is those kinds of people asking about you. Yes. And not assuming, but asking for information about you and then affirming your yourself and what you're inclined to go do and kind of the, the best and most open part of you. That's an excellent observation, Dave. Uh, I never felt like anyone directed me. It was more like ascertaining what my hopes were and then affirming that those were the things that I should follow and foster. Uh, lots of times those are magic moments 
you know, particularly in childhood and young adulthood, where someone, whoever it is that's a point of influence for you, says something and you make that that mental note that I'm going to remember this and I'm going to refer back to it. Do you do you remember you know what what was happening in those moments where you it's kind of like catching something in midair and going I'm I'm going to keep this. Do you, do you remember what that felt like? Yeah, I do. It 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 gave me a sense of feeling and a hope that my turn would come on the world stage. I'm a little bit reluctant to use that phrase the world stage, but I knew that I would enter the the life of the adult world, right? And that it was incumbent upon me, and I never felt that this were a burden, but more a hope that I was going to be asked to make my contribution. So with every theme paper <laughs> you write in elementary school, with every history test you pass or fail in high school, at every moment along that way, and with wonderful teachers offering their individual guidance, feel like I was preparing myself to make a contribution. Was I aware of what that contribution was going to be at that time? No, no, not in the least. I didn't have a life plan. I just knew that it was going to be my turn to do something and I needed to prepare myself for it. But there's something you just said that somewhere in that experience and in that moment, what you, what I'm hearing you say that you heard was not, let me go saddle you with expectations. What you heard was, you can navigate this and you can navigate, you know, whatever dream you want to pursue, wherever you want to go. There's a, there's a, a way forward and there's a journey there. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, I think I'm thinking this for the first time right now. I was never told to go follow a dream. I was told that dreams matter. (laughs) Dreams are important. It's up to you to figure out whether you want to follow them or not. Okay, Lee, I think we're ready for story number two. Full service. Everett Denton's dark blue bubble-topped pickup truck coasted to a stop alongside the curb in front of our house. The high afternoon sun whitened the windshield so that you couldn't see in. Everett leapt from the driver's side door like a puppy, long restrained, and he half ran to my parents' car, which sat baking in our driveway. He opened the door by using one of his ubiquitous oily rags because the car handle was hot to the touch. He settled behind the steering wheel, cranked the engine, backed down the driveway into the street, then roared away driving much faster than either my mom or dad would have. Mom, I called. Everett took our car. Okay, she said from the kitchen. If he's not back in time, we'll use his truck to take you to your lesson. My piano lesson was in an hour. I bet he'll make it, I yelled to my mom. Depends on the tires. Everett had taken our car to his tiny service station a mile away to top off the gas tank check the oil, inflate the tires to their specified PSI, and wash and wipe down the exterior. If he felt the tires needed to be rotated to maximize their tread life, he would. It was the tire service that might cause him to take more time and would give my mom and I an opportunity to use his truck and how I wanted to ride in that bubble-topped truck. Everett had taken our car without asking, 
He never asked anybody if he could kidnap their cars for an hour or so. If he was out of things to do at his service station, he sped around town until he spotted a car in need. He would take the car, leave his truck, and perform whatever service he felt the car needed. His truck was there for the car owner's use in case an errand could not wait. And no, he didn't have some master key to every ignition. The people in our small town left their keys in their cars because uh, auto theft was, shall we say, low on the list of criminal activity, right behind cow tipping and deliberately driving down our one and only one-way street in the unlawful direction. When Everett returned the cars he had kidnapped, the owner could expect to find on the front seat a hand-scrawled note saying something like, took $2 gas. That would be it. No charge for all the other work, for the oil, the washing, the tires, the entire Everett once-over. Everett wore army green coveralls every day. He owned two pairs of these overalls, which his wife would launder regularly with the most powerful detergent available at the local IGA grocery store. Everett's coveralls were never completely clean. The knees would be streaked black with motor oil. The waist would show the salt of sweat, and the chest would feature several greasy fingerprints from where Everett wiped his hands after checking someone's oil. His service station was about a quarter mile east of the last house going out of town to the east, then north toward Marysville. It had a crushed rock driveway that you could access from either the east or the west, and a cracked cement pad for two cars on either side of a single gas pump. The pump sat under a flaking, blistered plaster portico that kept some sun and some rain off Everett and his customers. The pump had those now collectible pre-digital price windows, featuring a one-inch wide white wheel with black numerals in a rounded font a listing Sinclair sign, which was two feet right of plumb by the time it reached its full 18 feet in height, announced Everett's station from its position between the highway and the portico. The station had two indoor service bays. These were crammed with tires, tools, work tables, and sundry auto parts. The station's office, which stood just to the left of the service bays, had countertops straining under empty pot bottles, dusty hunting and fishing magazines, greasy socket wrenches, used sandwich wrappers, and several woven chains made of the foil sleeves that sticks of chewing gum came in under their branded paper slip covers. When folded properly, those foil sleeves could be linked to make strong chains several feet long. Everett was the source of those foil wrappers. He chewed gum from the moment he awoke in the moment until he slept, including during sips of coffee or soda. The office's windows on its south and west sides were nearly opaque with filth. The office was not a place one wished to tarry. It was meant for quick, stand-up transactions between Everett and his customers. The office did, however, have one wonderful thing in it. A red, chest-style soda pop machine with bottles of Coca-Cola, knee-high, and root beer standing at attention in their silver cap helmets. A dime placed in the machine's coin slot, would release the metal teeth on the end of the row of bottles. You reached in, lifted a bottle out of the cold, and popped the silver cap using the built-in opener on the left side of the chest. Your bottle cap clinked musically against the others in the cap-catching compartment, which was rarely emptied because it required a screwdriver 
and two or three minutes of uninterrupted concentration, something Everett had in short supply. When a customer would roll in to buy gas, Everett would drop whatever he was doing and dash out to greet the customer. Fill her up, was his cheerful greeting around a mouthful of gum. He would pump gas and wash the windshield and chat with the driver about the weather, about the high school football team, or the horrible news coming out of Vietnam. When the car's tank was topped off, the pump's meter might read $1.83 or $2.25. Not uncommon in those days, when a gallon of gas might cost 19 cents. But then Everett would do his price thing. He would always, without fail, no matter what the pump read, round down the cost to the nearest dollar. For example, for $1.83, he would ask for a dollar. For $2.25, he would request $2. If a price landed on $1.99, he would roll all the way down to $1. Many customers ignored him and rounded up, say, from $1.85 to $2 and then drove away before he could try to give them change. Older women or others who never got out of their cars to look at the numbers on the gas pump went years wondering how Everett always managed to stop the pump on an even dollar total. Well, later that afternoon that Everett had kidnapped our car, my mom told me to get my things together to leave for my piano lesson. The time to go was nigh. Yes, we could use Everett's truck. But just as we were closing the door to our house behind us, Everett roared up our street in our car, our washed and wiped, gassed up, aired up, perfectly serviced car. My heart sank. Everett hopped out of our car and said to my mother, Well, I guess I made it just in time, huh, Barb? Yeah, we're just heading for piano lessons. Everett noticed my quiet dejection and understood that I was a boy who had two strikes against his day. One, I was a kid who had to go to piano lessons. Two, I was a kid who had to go to piano lessons in a very average sedan, not in a cool bubble-topped truck. Would it be all right if I took him over to Mrs. Strom's? Everett asked my mom with a wry smile. You could pick him up when he's done. Oh, I think that would be fine, Mom said. That'll work fine. My face shone as I clambered up into that truck with the world's best man for the best ride to piano lessons any kid ever had. We rode with the windows down, and we took the long way to Mrs. Strom's, an extra couple of blocks that permitted me another minute in that magical truck with Everett. All these years later, I still wonder why Everett was the way he was. It has occurred to me that maybe he couldn't make change with money. Maybe he didn't know how. So that's why he always rounded down his prices. I've often wondered about his nervous energy, which may have been some clinical condition undiagnosed in those days. I've wondered why he never seemed to care much of his own things, his clothes, his crowdy, filthy station. But he was so fastidious with the things who belonged to others. Well, mostly, I've wondered if any of us fully understood that an example of pure goodness, of unflagging selflessness, of putting others first, lived and worked among us. Everett, his secret is right there in his name, the best man ever.
All right. Thank you, Lee. Wonderful story. So uh, just a little conversation about that story. Did you, at the time that you were growing up and those kinds of experiences were happening, did you have a sense that your community consistently looked out for one another? Oh, there are so many examples of that extended community of caring. It was obvious that when someone had an illness in their family, the neighbors would converge on that home with home-cooked meals, offers to do whatever errands or chores were necessary. My mother frequently told me when I was an eight or nine-year-old child, you may go wherever you like to play on this nice summer day because everyone in the community would help you if you needed it. So there was great comfort in knowing no matter what kind of trouble you might have gotten yourself into, there were a a bunch of people watching for your well-being. So when the occasional, it sounds like, you know, bad thing happened or, or somebody did something wrong, how was the community judgmental about its members in that situation or you know did it make how did it make decisions about who deserved help or who didn't i had no sense of any strata okay. i had no sense that there was any discrimination or bias or ill will toward anyone in fact my hometown had one black citizen, mm-hmm. an older gentleman named Cecil, mm-hmm. and he was looked at uh, with equal love and conviction as anyone else in town. Similarly, with some of the poorer folks in town who didn't have the means or opportunities that other had, they were taken in close to the breast. So if you were in the community, you were in the community. You were absolutely in the community. There were no, no strata, no No, no full members, half members. None whatsoever. You were just a member. What were your reactions when you got out into the larger world and you saw what happens with people who are in need or who need help? Well, first of all, I was astonished that the rest of the world didn't operate like my small home community, right? Like, oh my goodness, there's someone in need and no one seems to be doing for them. So I tried my best until I finally came to the realization that you can't do for everyone. There's certainly not time or opportunity. That saddened me And I've tried to do as much as I can for others throughout my whole life. And I know that's rooted in what was done for me as a child. How, how have your thoughts or feelings evolved over time from that early childhood experience of community through what you just described of the cold splash of water in the face? I experienced the same thing (laughs) in my twenties, discovering that how, how have your thoughts and feelings evolved over time since then? about this notion of community uh with every year that passes just a greater deeper sense of gratitude for the community of caring in which i've grown up and a conviction to try to recreate that as best i can in my life do you think it's possible for us to do that is it possible somewhere out there for us to have a global community i think it is possible i think that's a picture that we should create for ourselves And for me, acknowledging that I can't solve the world's ills today or tomorrow or in one week, I try to do it one individual at a time. Thank you, Lee, so much. And that's our podcast for this week. We hope everybody has a great week. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining our podcast today. For more information about Pictures Out There products, services, and communities, or to contact us, please visit us at picturesoutthere.com or reach out to us on Twitter at the handle at PicsOutThere. 
You can also find us on Facebook. Please join us for our next podcast. We hope you have the day of your dreams.